Book One, Chapter Five, Part Four of the Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bonneville was very lively at all times. It was a little city of some twenty or thirty thousand inhabitants, where, as yet, the city hall, the high school building, and the opera house were objects of civic pride. It was well governed, beautifully clean, full of the energy and strenuous young life of a new city. An air of the briskest activity pervaded its streets and sidewalks. The business portion of the town, centering about Main Street, was always crowded. Annixter, arriving at the post office, found himself involved in a scene of swiftly shifting sights and sounds. Saddle horses, farm wagons, the inevitable Studebakers, buggies gray with the dust of country roads, buckboards with squashes and grocery packages stowed under the seat, two-wheeled sulkies and training carts were hitched to the gnarled railings and zinc-sheathed telegraph poles along the curb. Here and there, on the edge of the sidewalk, were bicycles, wedged into bicycle racks painted with cigar advertisements. Upon the asphalt sidewalk itself, soft and sticky with the morning's heat, was a continuous movement. Men with large stomachs, wearing linen coats but no vests, labored ponderously up and down. Girls in lawn skirts, shirtwaists, and garden hats went to and fro invariably in couples. Coming in and out of the drug store, the grocery store, and haberdashers, or lingering in front of the post office, which was on a corner under the IOOF hall. Young men in shirt sleeves with brown wicker cup protectors over their forearms and pencils behind their ears bustled in front of the grocery store, anxious and preoccupied. A very old man, a Mexican, in ragged white trousers and bare feet, sat on a horse block in front of the barber shop holding a horse by a rope around its neck. A Chinaman went by, teetering under the weight of his market-baskets, slung on a pole across his shoulders. In the neighborhood of the hotel, the Yosemite House, traveling salesmen, drummers for jewelry firms of San Francisco, commercial agents, insurance men, well-dressed, metropolitan, debonair, stood about cracking jokes or hurried in and out of the flapping white doors of the Yosemite barroom. The Yosemite bus and city bus passed up the street, on the way from the morning train, each with its two or three passengers. A very narrow wagon belonging to the Coal and Colmore Harvester Works went by, loaded with long strips of iron that made a horrible din as they jarred over the unevenness of the pavement. The electric car line, the city's boast, did a brisk business, its cars whirring from end to end of the street with a jangling of bells and a moaning plaint of gearing. On the stone bulkheads of the grass plat around the new city hall, the usual loafers sat, chewing tobacco, swapping stories. In the park were the inevitable array of nursemaids, skylarking couples, and ragged little boys. A single policeman in gray coat and helmet, friend and acquaintance of every man and woman in the town, stood by the park entrance, leaning an elbow on the fence-post, twirling his club. But in the center of the best business block of the street was a three-story building of rough brown stone, set off with plate-glass windows and gold-lettered signs. One of these latter read, Pacific and Southwestern Railroad, Freight and Passenger Office. 
while another, much smaller, beneath the windows of the second story, bore the inscription, P. and S. W. Land Office. Annixter hitched his horse to the iron post in front of this building and tramped up to the second floor, letting himself into an office where a couple of clerks and bookkeepers sat at work behind a high-wire screen. One of the latter recognized him and came forward. "'Hello,' said Annixter, abruptly, scowling the while. "'Is your boss in? Is Ruggles in?' The bookkeeper led Annixter to the private office in an adjoining room, ushering him through a door, on the frosted glass of which was painted the name Cyrus Blakely Ruggles. Inside, a man in a frock coat, shoestring necktie, and Stetson hat sat writing at a roller-top desk. Over this desk was a vast map of the railroad holdings in the country about Bonneville and Guadalajara, the alternate sections belonging to the corporation accurately plotted. Ruggles was cordial in his welcome of Annixter. He had a way of fiddling with his pencil continually while he talked, scribbling vague lines and fragments of words and names on stray bits of paper, and no sooner had Annixter sat down than he had begun to write in full-bellied script, A-N-N, A-N-N, all over his blotting pad. I want to see about those lands of mine, I mean of yours, of the railroads, Annixter commenced at once. I want to know when I can buy. I'm sick of fooling along like this. Well, Mr. Annixter, observed Ruggles, writing a great L before the A-N-N, -N, and finishing it off with a flourishing D. The lands, he crossed out one of the N's, and noted the effect with a hasty glance. The lands are practically yours. You have an option on them indefinitely, and as it is, you don't have to pay the taxes. Write your option. I want to own them. Annixter declared. What have you people got to gain by putting off selling them to us? Here this thing is dragged along for over eight years. When I came in on Quien Sabe, the understanding was that the lands, your alternate sections, were to be conveyed to me within a few months. The land had not been patented to us then, answered Ruggles. Well, it has been now, I guess, retorted Annixter. I'm sure I couldn't tell you, Mr. Annixter. Annixter crossed his legs worriedly. Oh, what's the good of lying, Ruggles? You know better than to talk that way to me. Ruggles' face flushed on the instant, but he checked his answer and laughed instead. Oh, <laughs> if, uh, if you know so much about it, he observed. Well, when are you going to sell to me? I'm only acting for the general office, Mr. Annixter, returned Ruggles. Whenever the directors are ready to take this matter up, I'll be only too glad to put it through for you. As if you didn't know. Look here, you're not talking to old Broderson. Wake up, Ruggles. What's all this talk in Genslinger's rag about the grading of the value of our lands this winter and an advance in price? Ruggles spread out his hands with a deprecatory gesture. <laughs> I don't own the Mercury, he said. Well, your company does. If it does, I don't know anything about it. Oh, rot. As if you and Genslinger and S. Behrman didn't run the whole show down here. Come on, let's have it, Ruggles. What does S. Behrman pay Genslinger for inserting that three-inch ad of the P&SW in his paper? Ten thousand a year, huh? Oh, <laughs> oh why not a hundred thousand and be done with it, returned the other, willing to take it as a joke. 
Instead of replying, Annixter drew his checkbook from his inside pocket. "'Let me take that fountain pen of yours,' he said. Holding the book on his knee, he wrote out a check, tore it carefully from the stub, and laid it on the desk in front of Ruggles. "'What's this?' asked Ruggles. Three-fourths payment for the sections of railroad land included in my ranch, based on a valuation of two dollars and a half per acre. You can have the balance in sixty-day notes. Ruggles shook his head, drawing hastily back from the check as though it carried contamination. I can't touch it, he declared. I've no authority to sell to you yet. I don't understand you people, exclaimed Annixter. I offered to buy of you the same way four years ago and you sing the same song. Well, it isn't business. You lose the interest on your money. Seven percent of that capital for four years. You can figure it out. It's big money. Well, then, I don't see why you're so keen on parting with it. You can get seven percent, same as us. I want to own my own land, returned Annixter. I want to feel that every lump of dirt inside my fence is my personal property. Why, the very house I live in now, the ranch house, stands on railroad ground. But you've an option. I tell you I don't want your cursed option. I want ownership, and that's the same with Magnus Derrick and old Broderson and Osterman and all the ranchers of the county. We want to own our land want to feel we can do as we blame please with it. Suppose I should want to sell King Sabi. I can't sell it as a whole until I've bought of you. I can't give anybody a clear title. The land has doubled in value ten times over again since I came in on it and improved it. It's worth easily twenty an acre now, but I can't take advantage of that rise in value as long as you won't sell, so long as I don't own it. You're blocking me. But, according to you, the railroad can't take advantage of the rise in any case. According to you, you can sell for twenty dollars, but we can only get two and a half. Oh, who made it worth twenty? cried Annixter. I've improved it up to that figure. Genslinger seems to have that idea in his nut, too. Do you people think you can hold that land untaxed for speculative purposes until it goes up to thirty dollars and then sell out to someone else, sell it over our heads? You and Genslinger weren't in office when those contracts were drawn. You ask your boss. You ask S. Behrman. He knows. The general office is pledged to sell to us, in preference to anyone else, for two and a half. Well, observed Ruggles decidedly, tapping the end of his pencil on his desk and leaning forward to emphasize his words, we're not selling now. That's said and signed, Mr. Annixter. Why not? Come on, spit it out. What's the bunco game this time? Because we're not ready. Here's your check. You won't take it? No. I'll make it a cash payment, money down, the whole of it, payable to Cyrus Blakely Ruggles for the P&SW. No. Third and last time. No. No. Go to the devil. I don't like your tone, Mr. Annixter, returned Ruggles, flushing angrily. I don't give a curse whether you like it or not, retorted Annixter, rising and thrusting the check into his pocket. But never you mind, Mr. Ruggles. You and S. Behrman and Genslinger and Shellgrim and the whole gang of thieves of you. You'll wake this state of California up some of these days by going just one little bit too far, and there'll be an election of railroad commissioners of, by, and for the people, 
that'll get a twist of you, my bunco-steering friend. You and your backers and cappers and swindlers and thimble-riggers, and smash you lock, stock, and barrel. That's my tip to you, and be damned to you, Mr. Cyrus Blackleg Ruggles. Annixter stormed out of the room, slamming the door behind him, and Ruggles, trembling with anger, turned to his desk, and to the blotting pad, written all over with the words lands, twenty dollars, two and a half, option, and over and over again with great swelling curves and flourishes, railroad, railroad, railroad. But as Annixter passed into the outside office on the other side of the wire partition, he noticed the figure of a man at the counter in conversation with one of the clerks. There was something familiar to Annixter's eye about the man's heavy built frame, his great shoulders and massive back, and as he spoke to the clerk in a tremendous rumbling voice, Annixter promptly recognized Dyke. There was a meeting. Annixter liked Dyke, as did everyone else in and around Bonneville. He paused now to shake hands with the discharged engineer and ask about his little daughter, Sidney, to whom he knew Dyke was to devotedly attached. "'Smartest little Ted in Tulare County,' asserted Dyke. "'She's getting prettier every day, Mr. Hennigster. There's a little Ted that was just born to be a lady. Can recite the whole of Snowbound without ever stopping. You uh, don't believe that, maybe, eh? Hmm? eh? Well, it's true. She'll be just old enough to enter the seminary up at Marysville next winter.' And if my hop business pays two percent on the investment, that's where she's going to go. How's it coming on? inquired Annixter. The hop ranch? Oh, prime. I've about caught the land in shape, and I've engaged a foreman who knows all about hops. I've been in luck. Everybody will go into the business next year when they see hops go to a dollar, and they'll overstock the market and bust the price. But I'm going to get the cream of it now. I say two percent. <laughs> Lord love you, it will pay a good deal more than that. It's got to. It's cost more than I figured to start the thing, so perhaps I may have to borrow somewheres. But then, on such a sure game as this, and I do want to make something out of that little tad of mine. Through here? inquired Annixter, making ready to move off. In just a minute, answered Dyke. Wait for me, and I'll walk down the street with you. Annixter grumbled that he was in a hurry, but waited, nevertheless, while Dyke again approached the clerk. I shall uh, want some empty cars of you people this fall, he explained. I'm a hop-raiser now, and I just want to make sure what your rates on hops are. I've been told, but I want to make sure, savvy? There was a long delay while the clerk consulted the tariff schedules, and Annixter fretted impatiently. Dyke, growing uneasy, leaned heavily on his elbows, watching the clerk anxiously. If the tariff was exorbitant, he saw his plans brought to naught, his money jeopardized, the little tad, Sidney, deprived of her education. He began to blame himself that he had not long before determined definitely what the railroad would charge for moving his hops. He told himself he was not much of a businessman, that he managed carelessly. Two cents suddenly announced the clerk with a certain surly indifference. Two cents a pound? Yeah, two cents a pound. That's in carload lots, of course. I wouldn't give you that rate on smaller consignments. Yes, carload lots, of course. Two cents. 
Well, all right. He turned away with a great sigh of relief. He sure did have me scared for a minute, he said to Annixter as the two went down the street. Fiddling and fussing so long. Two cents is all right, though. Seems fair to me. That fiddling of his was all put on. I know him, these railroad healers. He knew I was a discharged employee first off, and he played the game just to make me seem small, because I had to ask favors of him. I don't suppose the general office tips its slavees off to act like swine, but there's the feeling through the whole herd of them. You got to come to us, and we let you live only so long as we choose, and what are you gonna do about it? If you don't like it, get out. Annixter and the engineer descended to the street and had a drink at the Yosemite bar, and Annixter went into the general store while Dyke bought a little pair of red slippers for Sidney. Before the salesman had wrapped them up, Dyke slipped a dime into the toe of each with a wink at Annixter. Well, let the little tad find him there, he said behind his hand in a hoarse whisper. <laughs> That'll be one on Sid. Where to now? demanded Annixter as they regained the street. I'm going down to the post office and then pull out for the ranch. Going my way? Dyke uh, hesitated in some confusion, tugging at the ends of his fine blonde beard. No, uh, no, I guess I'll leave you here. I've got to, I've got other things to do up the street. So long. The two separated, and Annixter hurried through the crowd to the post office, but the mail that had come in on that morning's train was unusually heavy. It was nearly a half an hour before it was distributed. Naturally enough, Annixter placed all the blame of the delay upon the railroad, and delivered himself of some pointed remarks in the midst of the waiting crowd. He was irritated to the last degree when he finally emerged upon the sidewalk again, cramming his mail into his pockets. One cause of his bad temper was the fact that in the bundle of Queen Sabe letters was one to Hilma Tree, in a man's handwriting. <laughs> Annixter had growled to himself. That Pip Delaney seems now that I'm to act as go-between for her. Well, maybe that female girl gets this letter, and then again, maybe she don't. But suddenly his attention was diverted. Directly opposite the post office, upon the corner of the street, stood quite the best business building of which Bonneville could boast. It was built of Calusa granite, very solid, ornate, imposing. Upon the heavy plate of the window of its main floor, in gold and red letters, one read the words, Loan and Savings Bank of Tulare County. It was of this bank that S. Behrman was president. At the street entrance of the building was a curved sign of polished brass fixed upon the angle of the masonry. This sign bore the name S. Behrman, and under it in smaller letters were the words, Real Estate mortgages end of book one chapter five part four